worship team. That is one of my favorite songs to sing with you guys. First through fifth graders, you've seen the slide. Go ahead and head down to Kids Zone. We hope you have an awesome time down there. I know you will. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful that you, somehow through your power, brought your word to us over many years and many miles so that we could have hope. Just pray that's what your church has today. Maybe that people see your face for the first time through the face of your resurrected son. If they remember anything else, please help them remember the hope that is in being seen where we're at by the one who paid it all. Thank you for this time. I'm so excited to be able to share your word. I just ask that you speak instead of me. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm excited this morning to start a new series. Um, Pastor Nathan's up north with the men at the men's retreat. We were having a fun time there this weekend, and I came back so I could be with you guys and kick off a new series where we meet resurrected Jesus. After all, our hope is in the resurrection. Our sins were paid by the death of, of Christ on the cross, and our hope is in resurrection life with him. So we're going to start a series as we wrap up the rest of John. We're going to be in John chapter 20, verse 11 today uh, through 18, if you want to turn there. Uh, but before we get into this series, I just want to tell you all something about myself. Um, I just need you to know that I have a very bad habit of getting stuck. <laughs> you, that's not even the worst one. <laughs> but I have a really bad habit. I mean, if it's a pickup truck, a forklift, an Impala two-tracking in the Huron uh, National Forest. That's a fun story. A Kubota, a Massey Ferguson. I have a bad habit repeatedly of getting stuck, buried to the axles, frame is sitting on the ground, stuck. And you, thought, you know, there's a couple things every time, no matter how it happened, every time I think, well, I've learned my lesson now. <laughs> I'll pay attention to where the edge of the driveway is. I've learned my lesson. I'm not going to do that again. And I just do it with a different vehicle. Next time it's with a pickup truck. Well, it's not the same thing, but I did not learn my lesson. I also think something else almost every time this happens. I think, is, is this tractor, is this, is this going to be a permanent thing? Is this going to become a lawn fixture out here? Like, oh, there's the Bailey's house. You can tell because that's his tractor buried to the frame. Am I going to be able to get out of this? I'll spin my wheels and spin my wheels and think about how can I get out of this. And I, I just want you to tell you, tell you, it's a bad habit. It keeps happening. In fact, sometimes it happens when I have friends with me. And that's really embarrassing. But it's God's providence because sometimes those friends are the answer to how we get unstuck. And, and, and they have the talents and the tools and the ability to help us get out of our predicament. But I can tell you that this is a really bad habit. It doesn't matter what vehicle it is. It doesn't show any signs of improving in my life. I also want to tell you this morning that I wish I was only talking about tractors and trucks. I think if, if you live life long enough, you realize that you have a bad habit of getting stuck because we all do. We get stuck in something and we ask the same questions. Is this going to be permanent? Is this ever going to go away? Or is this a fixture in my life and this is where I'm going to be for the rest of it? Is there anybody who can help me? Or, or is this up to me and I'm going to solve it? 
through some means of my own. Or maybe you think, oh, I learned my lesson that time. I'm never going to do that again. Now I'm ready. I'll pay attention. I won't do that sin again. I won't feel that way again. I won't make that choice again. I won't do it again. I've learned my lesson. You know as well as I do, Brennan's tractor will testify, we don't learn our lesson. Really, I mean, we don't. We get stuck. And, and it's for different reasons. We're going to meet someone today in John chapter 20 who's really stuck for good reasons. For things that happened around her and to her, she is stuck. But she's stuck in grief. And I realize there's some of you who might be there today, but not all of us are. And not all of our grief is the same. But you might be stuck in grief thinking, is this how it's always going to feel? Is this, is this what's always going to be on my mind when I think about them or this life or my dreams? What I wanted God to do for me? Is this what's always going to be on my mind? You might be stuck in grief. And I think this passage has good news for you today if you're stuck in grief. But if you're not stuck in grief, and maybe it's something different, maybe it's this, and I already hinted at it, a habitual sin. And I mean, we all have them. Really, we do. We have that same spot that we slide off the driveway every time and get stuck. Maybe it's that, and you say, I'm going to learn from this. Well, I, I just want you to know, you, you can learn from it. But you can't avoid it on your own. You could, you'll fall back into it without trusting someone other than your own strength. And we'll talk about that in this passage, too. But maybe it's not a habitual sin. Maybe it's not grief. Maybe it's anger because of something that happened. You didn't do it, but you are so angry that you can't change anything about the situation, but spinning your wheels in anger just feels like at least you're doing something about it as you sit there and spin your wheels. I don't know if that's you this morning. I think there's good news in this passage for you. Maybe you're stuck in fear. Maybe it's a combination of a bunch of things. But I also think we're going to see some fear in this passage. And I think fear can be the most isolating place to be. Where you're stuck and you're thinking, no one else knows how I feel because no one else knows what I experienced. And I'm going to fear this for the rest of my life. What if this comes back? What if this happens again? And it can make you stuck. I think we're going to see that as we meet Mary at the tomb where she's stuck. So a little background. Last week, if you were here, if you're familiar with the gospel story, Mary goes to the tomb early on Sunday morning. This is why we worship on Sunday morning. Christ rose on a Sunday. She finds the empty tomb, runs back to where the disciples are hiding out, and says, I can't find the Lord. I don't know where they've hidden him. I don't know where they've taken his body. She's going based off of what she's seen. She's got some partial information about what happened. And she, she starts this trajectory where the disciples run Nathan talked about the marathon to the grave last week. And John and Peter go to the grave and they see, in fact, he isn't there. He's not there. The wrappings are there. They see an empty grave and an open tomb and they realize Jesus is not there. And there's some different information in that passage that it looks like John understands he's, he's risen, but he's gone. So he still has partial information. And then the passage we went through last week ends with this just a little kind of linking phrase. The disciples went back to their homes in verse 10. But they left Mary by herself at the tomb. So we meet Mary at the tomb at verse 11 this morning. And I can't help but notice the words it starts with. How hopeless is this? How stuck does she sound? But Mary stood weeping. We're going to talk just for a minute about who Mary Magdalene is later. The author, John, will tell us this is Mary Magdalene. And it's just really important you know who she is and a little background about her because 
a lot of untrue things are said about her in history. And there's some amazing true things actually in God's word about her if we look for it. And I just want you to have a clear picture of where, where Mary has come from because it plays into where she's at right now. In Luke chapter 8, it's describing some of the early days of Jesus' ministry, and it talks about how there's a group of women, women in the first century, who follow this rabbi on his ministry. And they support him out of their own means. If you know anything about early history, that's amazing. They had means to begin with, and were able to support and invest in the disciples and their ministry, and Jesus' ministry from their own means. But Luke adds a little phrase that Mark 16 also backs up. Mary Magdalene was among them. And out of her came seven demons. So I want you to have in your mind, as we go through this passage, Mary Magdalene is standing there thinking, where is he? But the background is, what's been done for Mary already in her life, she thinks is just the best thing that's ever going to happen. And now the person who did it, not only is he dead in her mind, I can't even mourn him. I can't even... Walk the next step in my grief because he's gone. I can't honor his body in a proper burial and just make a step forward. She's got to be thinking, now that he's gone, are the demons going to come back? Now that he's gone, am I always going to be left off to the side standing here at the grave while the disciples go and do their own thing? Because after all, he's who brought her into this circle to begin with, and he's gone. So I want you to have this about Mary. Her last name gives us a little bit of a clue about where she's from too. And this is worth noting because it plays into... Again, how she must have been feeling in this moment. On this map, the yellow arrow shows you where Jerusalem is. If you're not familiar with the gospel story, the the ministry of Christ ends, uh, at least this portion of the ministry of Christ, where we're we're at, occurs in Jerusalem. His death, burial, and resurrection occurs in the city and outside the city walls of Jerusalem. But Mary, Mary Magdalene isn't from Jerusalem. Her last name tells us she's from Magdala, which is up in the Sea of Galilee, kind of on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, in the northern part of the reaches of Jesus' ministry. Mary is a long ways away from home. The person who meant the most to her is dead. And she's stuck in grief and fear. And she's alone. And that's where we meet Mary this morning. One of the things that I always look for that is worth pointing out in a sermon because it attests to the truth of God's word is there's actually a synagogue that they found from the time of Mary in Magdala. They were worshiping faithful Jews in that town at the time Jesus and Mary And the rest of the disciples were traveling around the Sea of Galilee. Jesus and Mary may have been at this this synagogue during the ministry. So again, this is a real person, real events, because it's a real story. So we meet Mary Magdalene as she's weeping. The other thing you need to know about is this isn't just calm, like funeral crying. He's gone, but he's in a better place type of sentimentality. She is falling apart. The word here for weeping is the same word used for another Mary when she's mourning the death of her brother, Lazarus. I'm never going to see him again. He's my brother. He's gone. The word weeping here is also used when Jesus stands and looks over the city of Jerusalem knowing everything they're about to do to him and says, I wish I could gather you like a hen gathers chicks. And he cries over the city of Jerusalem. The word weeping here is Peter after he denies Christ. Because again, he was in this story too. He bitterly weeps when he realizes what he's done. So Mary is alone, inner grief, probably some fear, falling apart because she thinks the best thing that Jesus could have ever done for me has been done, and now there's no hope. Watch what happens. So she's outside the tomb, same place that the disciples left her. And it says that as she wept, she stooped to look in the tomb. 
Don't we have to see it for ourselves, even if it's bad? She wants to see, okay, is it really? It can't be true. Maybe he's in there. She's still looking for a body, though, and she wants to see with her own eyes. And I want you to, maybe a takeaway for us here is sometimes even what we see for, from, with our own eyes is only part of the truth. It's only part of the situation. She's going to experience that today because it's what she hears that changes everything. She saw two angels in white. Now, there's a lot that could be said here, and we don't have the time for it entirely, but I find, if nothing else, it's humorous how simple the conversation with these two angels is on Mary's behalf. But I want you to remember that there were angels there because it alludes to something powerful that's going to happen in this story. The word for angels, and a side note, I'm not a Greek or a Hebrew or anything language-wise expert, not even English. But the Greek word for angels here is angelos. And this is important because later on, when we, when we read John, we look for themes and words he likes to use, like believe, follow. Well, later on, he's going to use this word again, and it pulls together the story for us this morning of what is really happening in the garden, what, what's going to change Mary's life. But you just need to know that in, in the biblical times, angels were messengers. If they showed up, they were going to tell you something. At the beginning of the Gospels, they show up to another Mary. Remember, there's several of them. And they tell her, you're with child. You're going to be with child. And he's going to be the king, the savior. He's going to take away the sins of his people. So the angels typically have a message, but something changes in this story, and we don't get to hear what they have to say. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Verse 13, it says, They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? I think there's a couple things going on. I think they know what happened because they're sitting in the empty tomb. Maybe they were there as Christ rose from the dead. That's speculation, but I do think it's safe to say they know what's happening. And they're asking her, why are you weeping? This is the best news ever. But Mary doesn't know. I also think there's a second reason. A lot of times when, when Jesus especially, who I understand is not an angel, but when Jesus asks a question, he already knows the answer. But he wants people to hear themselves answer the question. I think that's kind of what's going on with the angels here. They want her to be able to say, he's missing. I can't mourn. I can't move on from this spot that I'm stuck in. But something happens that interrupts this, and we don't know, but, but what I can tell you is it changes, what happens next changes Mary forever. She says to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. I find it fascinating that, remember, just from like a human context, Jesus is a martyr for a cause. He was leading a rebellion in Rome's eyes and in the Jewish authorities' eyes. And even after he's dead, death penalty trial, public execution, buried in a grave. Mary says, he's my Lord. He's my king. She identifies herself with Christ. And this is powerful because in a minute, he's going to do the same thing with her. But she's continually, when she says to the disciples, they've taken his body, she refers to them as the Lord. She does that now with the angels. But something happens. And so just remember, she's standing, facing the grave, talking to these two angels who are sitting in the grave. And she turns says, having said this, as soon as Mary says what the problem is, she turns and sees Jesus standing. Maybe she heard something. Maybe there was movement. Maybe Jesus said something that's not recorded. But what we do know is it takes her turning around to see Christ. But I think there's more to that. I think it reminds us that Jesus was there the whole time. He's right behind her. Jesus missed the disciples. For some reason, he didn't talk to the disciples. He specifically intended to talk to Mary that morning. 
I think that's powerful for, for in the context of when somebody is in grief and somebody is in fear and anger. Jesus knows exactly where you're at. He's, he's seeking to talk to you. But she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Again, I think Jesus is asking a question he knows the answer to, but he wants to hear her say what's on her heart. He wants to hear her say, What is the, what is the biggest thing you want right now, Mary? What, what is on your heart? What is causing this? So that she can hear herself say, He's gone. But he adds, if you have the text in front of you, you know, he asks a second question. I just think this is a powerful allusion to another time in another garden where he said the same words. Whom are you seeking? If you remember before the arrest of Jesus, when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the troops came to arrest him, they had no clue who Jesus was. They had to have an informant, Judas, point him out to them. And he asked them, who are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? Because he wanted them to say Jesus of Nazareth so he could let the disciples go. And in the same way, he wants Mary to say, I'm looking for Jesus. But she's still looking for a body. And so then something profound happens, and it doesn't require a lot of words. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Again, she's looking for a body. Something happens. It doesn't require a lot of words. Jesus said to her, Mary. Mary. Just her name. Mary, I see you. Don't you see who I am? I love the commentators on this. They say, you know how many times Mary heard her name from Jesus' mouth over two and a half, three years? And how different this one would have been. But isn't this how it works for us? We remember people's voices, and that sometimes jars us. And in this case, it takes Mary out of no one knows where I'm at and what I'm going through to, Mary, I know you better than anyone else. I know exactly where you're at, and I'm going to meet you there. I've waited for you. The other thing that this does is it shows us that Jesus was like beyond sure that this was not a message for the angels to deliver. In his plan, it was, I'm going to tell Mary. I want her to see me face to face because I want to see the reaction on her face when she realizes I'm not dead, when I'm alive, and I knew exactly where she was this whole time. I think it's amazing that he took that message directly to Mary and didn't leave that for angels because it was so vitally important that she knew that she was seen by him that moment on purpose. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. So somewhere in between this one-word conversation that's happening, she had turned back to the tomb. I think it's because later on she must have told John, I thought he was the gardener. <laughs> I thought he was the gardener. Can you believe it? But then she turns when she hears her voice and she says, Rabboni, which means teacher. John translates this out of Aramaic or Hebrew for us. This is the second impressive thing about what Mary says here in the garden to me. Again, remember, she identifies him as her Lord. And, and she's identifying herself with a guy who was executed for treason, for inciting rebellion. For, for, in the Jew's mind, distorting Scripture. And she remembers also who he was to her. She was his, her teacher. She calls him by what he is to her. You're my teacher. But I think there's a deeper, a deeper depth to her saying, Rabboni. And I think it's her saying, I want to go right back to where we were. I want to keep learning from you. I don't want you to ever go anywhere else because I know what happened last time and I don't want to feel like I felt 
when I was alone and you were dead and everything was falling apart. So I'm going to keep you right here. I think the clue is in what Jesus says next. I'm sorry I got ahead of myself because I'm so excited to tell you that. So what was, my, what was, what was earth-shattering for Mary here was that she heard her name from her Savior's lips. See, again, we look at themes that authors have. And John has alluded to this back when he says, I want to tell you what Jesus was describing himself as to his disciples. One of the ways he described himself was a shepherd. I'm going to lead you and protect you and do what you need, but not what you want. So he's describing himself as a shepherd in John chapter 10, verse 2. He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. He meets the sheep where they're at. And he calls his own sheep by name. This is what we can expect. That he knows my name. If I'm his sheep, he knows my name. And he's going to call me by my name. And in that context, in that historical context, knowing a person's name was knowing them. And, and you know this because how much, how much does it matter to you when somebody greets you, even, let's say, on a Sunday by your name? Somebody, you know, a returning customer at your business knows your name. It, it matters to you. Jesus knows this, and he's, he's saying, I call you by name because you're my sheep. But it gets better. And he leads them out. What Mary needed was to be known and seen where she was at and be led out of this spot. And I want to I, I acknowledge that it might not happen instantaneous for you. If you're in grief, from what I see and understand of grief and the people that shared their grief with me and I've talked to, over my time here and in life, is it is a process. It is a long road. And it comes back when you least expect it. And it can be lonely. But it won't always feel like it feels exactly right now. And Jesus promised back in John chapter 10, I'll call you by name and I'll lead you out of where you're at. And you'll be with me. But he does that, more, he does that in more ways than just his immediate proximity. And that's where I was going a moment ago. But it's important for you to know that this is a picture John has been painting as he wrote his gospel story. As he knows your name, he's going to lead you out. Will you follow him? Again, at the beginning I said, we believe that if you meet the resurrected Jesus, if you, if you see him face to face, you'll be transformed. In the next couple stories, Jesus meets the disciples where they're at, where they're gathering, locked up in a house on two occasions. Meets a couple on a road trip as they walk to Emmaus. He meets them where they're at, and he transforms them there so that they can follow him out. So I think the good news, if, if you're this person who's like, I am just so angry, but I'm going to spin my wheels so I feel like I'm doing something. Well, just know that Jesus sees you spinning your wheels and wants to meet you right where you're at if you would just turn and see him. If you would just turn and know he's right behind you waiting to say, can I, can I help you out of this? Do you want to get out of this or do you, do you want to spin your, spin your wheels? If you're stuck in a moment of fear and you can't make a decision because of all the decisions you've ever made have led you to this point, or so you believe. And he wants to lead you out of that. But it starts right where you're at. I think there's a perception in church, at least I grew up with it, and thankfully by God's grace it was corrected in my mind by amazing people who I got to know their stories as they got to know mine. If you're new to this church or new to church, and you think, this is just a collection of people who've got it figured out. This is just a bunch of people who show up. Everything's okay. I think everybody in their truest, deepest heart right now, myself included, would admit, would admit we are a collection of people who God has met where we're at. And praise God he has. 
because there is not a single self-rescuer in this room. We're not pulling ourselves out of that hole. In fact, Paul spends a lot of his time explaining how necessary that is. So the first thing that I realize as I look at this, where Mary's at, is exactly where Jesus meets her and transforms her there. But like I said at the beginning, it just keeps getting better. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. So go back to there where she says, Rabboni. And I said, I think she's also literally right next to him. Like, I'm not leaving your presence again because I know what without you is like. And I'm never doing that again. I want to follow you until you die or go away or follow you eternally. But in her mind, physical proximity is safety for her. And she's not going to let him out, out of her sight again. But Jesus reminds her, number one, of a message he's going to give her for others, but also of an important truth for us. That in spite of what we would want, God is often not what we want. But every single step of the way, he is absolutely what we needed. Early on in the story, if Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life, was this honorable man, good teacher, important rabbi, he'd be exactly what a third of the world thinks he is, a good teacher. If he died for his sins, we talked about this on Easter Sunday. If you weren't here, please go back and watch that, session, or that sermon because it will lead you into this text. If he died for our sins but didn't resurrect, we would have peace that the payment for our sins was paid. But would we know it's really paid? Would we know that, the, as Nathan said, that there was money in the bank and the check cleared? See, that's where Mary's at. She knows he died. At least she thinks she knows why, because of the Romans and the Jews. She knows he died. But just like in our society, when someone leaves, leaves prison, what do we say? They've paid their debt to society. When they come out of prison, it shows us they've paid their debt to society. We say that. We use that. So Jesus rising from the dead, not being a martyr that we could just mourn and work through our grief with, but rising from the dead is exactly what we needed. We needed him to rise from the dead so we knew God is still not angry at you. This, this debt is paid. Just accept it. But again, now we're at Jesus is with Mary. And he's resurrected. And she's like, don't go anywhere. Because it can never get better than this. And he's going to correct that. No, 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 Mary. I'm going to do what you need still. I'm going to be who you need, not what you want. I'm not going to be with you forever physically right next to you. But it's going to be better. And he uses this word ascended. He's going to move from, from the earthly plane to the heavenly realm. And the words that he uses next help us understand what he's going to do. And we're going to go to some of John's other writing to help understand that today. Go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. This is amazing. My brothers. He's talking about the disciples. This is the name he uses for the disciples only after he rises from the dead. Let's go over who the disciples are again. One betrayed him. The other one denied him three times. The rest ran away and locked themselves in a house. But they're his brothers. See, what he knows, and they will find out pretty soon as he meets them face-to-face next week, next week's sermon, is that what he accomplished by rising from the dead makes that betrayal, denial, and abandonment as far as from the east as from the west. He knows now you are my brothers. That's gone. You're my brothers. And then he tells her what he's going to do. I'm going to send to my father... And your father. In John chapter 1, John talks about this. He says, he's going to be our father. He gives you the right to be called the children of God if you believe in him. Jesus is saying, I've, I've accomplished this now. I bought you. We're siblings under the father. 
and he is your God. So what was, what was important for Mary? She had this set of facts. The grave is empty. Jesus is gone. I can't even mourn. How am I going to get through this? Jesus meets her where she's at, and then he transforms her mind. Paul reminds us of this. We need to be renewed by the transforming of our mind. The way she thought after this occasion and what she fully knew, the whole truth, changed her completely. So I think, I would submit to you, if you meet Jesus today, you meet the resurrected Christ for the first time in this text, through his word, through our time together in this worship service, it'll change what you know. Because you might be a betrayer, a denier, or an abandoner, and he'll call you his brother. He'll bring you in. Remember, I know their name. I call them by name, and I lead them out. I hope that is an encouragement to you today. So we find out that Mary does exactly what Jesus asked her to do. She goes and announces to the disciples. She's that faithful follower that she says she wants to be. Rabboni, I want you to be my teacher. Master, I will follow you. And she does exactly that. I told you at the beginning of our time, I wanted you to remember that word, angelos. That's what announced is. So when Jesus meets you where you're at, he gives you a message that's fit for angels to deliver that he tells you face to face. He takes Mary, who would have had to have been on the fringe of society as a demon-possessed woman in the first century, redeems her from those demon, that demon possession, brings her into the fellowship with the disciples. Then she thinks she's on her own because he's dead, and all that fear and anxiety creeps in, that loneliness and grief creeps in. He meets her face to face, and he gives her a mission. He meets her in just this depth of misery and gives her a mission. And it is the most important news yet. She says, I've seen the Lord. Remember, she wanted to see if the grave was empty, and now she's seen him face to face. So what she saw was part of the picture, but also what she knows now, what she heard directly from him is the rest of the story. I said a moment ago that Jesus, God, often the hard part of getting stuck is because God just won't be what we want. We throw our wants out to him, and he says, no, what I have for you is so much better. What I have for you is so much better. You see, that's true. What he said to her, the things that she delivered, is that he was going to go to the Father. John, later on, is talking to a church about what this looks like. In 1 John chapter 2, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. Now you might hear that and you think, Well, I got out of one pit, but now I'm in another one. Well, God knew that. and That's why he has Jesus at his right hand. John continues in this verse. He says, If anyone does sin, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So what Mary wants is him to be with her all this time. And he says, no, 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 Mary, you need me up there with your father saying, remember what we did. Remember my righteousness on them, for them, my death for them. She said, I want you to just lead me because that ministry is awesome. I'll continue to support you, but I need you right here. Otherwise, bad things are going to happen. And he said, no, no, you need me next to the Holy Father telling him that your debt is paid, showing him that your debt is paid, claiming you as mine. John gives us peace by showing us that the best news just keeps getting better because Jesus is what we need, not only what we want, by ascending to the Father and advocating for us. So this meets us where we're at because I believe he starts on you in that pit. If you would turn and hear his voice, 
And it transforms what we know from this partial set of facts to the full story of God's goodness to us on our behalf. And then it transforms us for where we're headed. Imagine the difference between the first time Mary showed up at the house of the disciples and the second time. Oh, here's Mary again. Yes, we know the body is still missing. No, you've got to see this. You won't believe what he said. He's, I've seen the Lord. Imagine the difference that that was for her. And imagine how it changed her to know that she was restored into this group of disciples, the ones who just hours ago had left her alone at the tomb grieving. He said, no, go to my brothers because they're your brothers too. You're still a part of this. He gave her a mission. And he's going to transform us for that mission, for where we're headed. So some of our takeaways, like what do we do when we're headed into the pit, in the stuck place, or coming out of it? Because I think you're one of the three. If there's somebody watching or listening or here today who's like, I, you know, I, I, know, I don't get stuck. I don't know what Brendan's driving problem is, but I don't get stuck. Just wait. Just wait for a little while. You had a faithful disciple of Christ who got stuck, mourning, in fear and in grief. So what do we need to know? If we're going to be transformed where we're at, what do we need to know? That it happens by hearing his voice. Don't look anywhere else. She's looking in the tomb. Based on what she sees, this is a hopeless situation. Don't look anywhere else. Look into his word. Hear his voice solely from his word and understand what he has for you is better than what you want. It's what you need. Absolutely what you need. Also, I think that you can't meet the resurrected Christ face-to-face through his text or literally in the first century and not have what you know changed, not have your thinking changed and what you hold to changed. So be a student like Mary. I don't mean literally where he's next to you because Mary even had to understand that she can continue to be a student with him in heaven advocating for her. So be a student. Be a student of his word so that you recognize his voice, you hear it, but then you follow it. Remember, John chapter 10 says the sheep follow him. They don't just hear his voice and say, oh, I think that's the shepherd. Okay, good, I'm glad he's here. No, they want to be with the shepherd as soon as he shows up. And last but not least, be transformed for where you're headed. We are all headed out into a life this week. To a job, family, school, all different situations. Around different places where we could get stuck. But I think that there's something really deep about how he sends her back to the disciples because transformation with the resurrected Christ happens in two ways. It happens individually. Your mind and your thinking is changed by seeing him face-to-face through his word. But it also happens corporately. When the sheep are following the shepherd together, there's transformation in a corporate sense. And I think that's the power behind Mary being sent back to the disciples with this, with this amazing message that was fit for angels. She was told, go to the disciples and tell them this. And I would submit this sets a really high bar for how we interact as a church, as, and a greater church, how we interact with other believers. Because again, if you're a denier, a deceiver, an abandoner, a betrayer, he has, if, if you are his, he has cast that as far as from the east as from the west. And we all have, as a part of the church, the same advocate. So there's some transformation that can happen together. And that's why I love this church, because you do things together. We do things as a church body. And if you're, again, sitting on the edge thinking, man, but look, you know, they all got it together. Talk to any one of us. (laughs) I'll show you some more pictures of some stuck vehicles, and I'll tell you about some real stuck times 
And I can tell you that we are a collection of people who Jesus met where we are at and transformed our thinking and our lives with the best news yet. Let me pray. God, I just ask that they heard your word today and that if someone's thinking about turning to you, that they would just know that it is better than they could imagine. That it doesn't mean all the difficult things go away in an instant because life is very hard. We don't know what happened to Mary after this, but we know that people were persecuted for following you from the moment you came to earth. So we just pray that for people who are on the edge wondering if they should turn to you, that they would indeed turn to you and that they would hear your voice and realize how much you know them, how comfortable it can be to be known by an all-knowing God who's also a gracious and forgiving God. Help us to portray that well here as a church family and as we're individually transformed by the best news, the good news of what you've done for us. Help us to also be transformed as a church family for where we're headed together. Thank you for your word and handling it over the years to get to us so that we could celebrate this good news this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.